Amen. Please be seated. If you have a Bible, you can open to John's Gospel, chapter 17. The text is also printed in the bulletin for you, and there are some Bibles available on the back, uh, in the back of the sanctuary if you need one. John 17, verses 20 through 26. Um, this summer, we've been looking at um, a series on the Trinity, how, how God in himself, who he is as Father, Son, and Spirit, is the foundation for how we think about all of reality, how we think about everything in the Christian life. Uh, at least, you know, we're looking at just a few of the major themes of the Christian life. Can't cover all those in, um, in just one summer. But, um, I mean, it makes sense, right? If God made everything, and he did so for a purpose, and he's got a purpose and a direction, a goal for everything that he's made, then... Um, it makes sense that who he is, what he's like, um, will give shape to everything. Right? Um, and when you, get, when you get down to the core of Christianity, the chief thing that sets it uh, apart as a religion, as a worldview, as a, a lifestyle, as a means for relationship with God, the chief thing that sets Christianity apart from anything else in the world is that our God is absolutely unique. There is no God like our God. Um, and God is what makes Christianity unique, especially the fact that he is one God in three persons, his triune nature. So we've been exploring some of the connections between who God is as a trinity and uh, what the Christian life is like, and we're grounding um, our identity, we're grounding our actions, uh, we're grounding our thoughts in, in God's identity and God's actions, who he is as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So this morning, uh, we'll look at how God's triune nature shapes our evangelism. Now, um, nobody likes sermons on evangelism, right? Um, my guess is that if you've ever thought about the Trinity in connection with evangelism, then um, you've probably just wondered how on earth to explain the Trinity to your non-Christian friends, right? Um, they don't have a biblical worldview. They don't have the categories. They don't have the language. For understanding the Trinity, I mean, do you really understand the Trinity yourself? And you have these things, maybe. But um, trying to wonder, how, how can I communicate the Trinity? And maybe that's the extent of the connection in your mind between the Trinity and evangelism. Um, the Trinity is just a confusing belief to communicate to unbelievers. That is true, right? That is true. Um, but the doctrine of the Trinity is, is much more important to evangelism than that. Um, the fact that evangelism exists at all is because God is a trinity. The fact uh, God's triune nature is its the only reason that we have anything to say when we do evangelism. God's triune nature is what forms the contours of the gospel that we want to communicate with people, the gospel that we share. Um, God's triune nature shapes the way in which we do evangelism, right? the attitude that we have in it. Um, God's being triune is what properly motivates our evangelism and so on. So, I mean, it really is uh, thoroughly connected. So let's explore some of those connections um, in our text. Let me read, uh, let me pray, and then we'll read from John 17. <clears throat> Father, we thank you for sending your son into the world for us, and it's in his name that we come to you now and ask for help as we consider your word. We pray that your spirit would come to us and assure us of your love for us and 
change us more and more into the likeness of Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Jesus was praying in John 17, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one. I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. This is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Praise be to you, O Christ. <clears throat> so, um, I don't think anybody could do that text justice when they're reading it. It's, it's one of the most incredible passages in all of the scripture, right? Um, a big part of the reason why it's incredible is probably so obvious that it kind of escapes our notice most of the time. Um, in this passage, one person of God prays to another person of God. Right? Uh, it's one God, but the Son prays to the Father. The disciples witnessed it. Uh, the Spirit inspired John to record it for us. So we know that it is important to God that we would know that he's triune. It's important for him to reveal himself to us as being uh, Father, Son, and Spirit, a triune God. In fact, this whole section in, in John's Gospel, John uh, chapters 13 through 17, uh, is chock full of Jesus' teaching about the Trinity uh, the night before he went to the cross, right? the night that he was betrayed, the night where he instituted the Lord's Supper. Um, his teaching is full of teaching on the Trinity. He talks a lot about how the Father sent him, how the Father loves him, and he loves the Father, and that he's going back to the Father, that we can only come to the Father through him, that he and the Father are going to send the Holy Spirit, the Helper, to teach his disciples, to remind them the things that Jesus taught them, to bear witness about Jesus. The Spirit would do that. He would bear witness about Jesus. The Spirit would glorify Jesus. Um, and so there's a book um, referenced a few times through the series by Robert Lethem called The Holy Trinity, pretty big book, and he, uh, he mentions it, uh, that um, Sinclair Ferguson, who some of you may be familiar with as a pastor and theologian, uh, wrote him an email in dialogue about the Trinity and um, in this email, Sinclair Ferguson said to Robert Lethem, <clears throat> I've often reflected on the rather, rather obvious thought that when his disciples were about to have the world collapse in on them, our Lord spent so much time in the upper room speaking to them about the mystery of the Trinity. If anything could underline the necessity of Trinitarianism for practical Christianity, that must surely be it. Um, so, now it's true that the world was going to collapse for the disciples, right? The, 
the world as they understood it was uh, going to fall down around them. Jesus was trying to prepare them for the difficulty of seeing him die. And he was trying to prepare them for the difficulty of following him through their own suffering, which pretty much characterized their lives as his followers after that. Right? Um, but ultimately, he was preparing them for mission. Right? Uh, to bear witness about him in a hostile world, but to bear witness about him. He's preparing them for evangelism. Right? So in their final class before graduation, Jesus taught on the Trinity. And then in our passage, he prayed and he taught through his prayer. And Jesus is praying for his disciples in particular, especially the bulk, the first um, 19 verses or so of the, uh, the chapter, uh, for the apostles, right? For the 11, would have been 12 except for Judas. Um, he's praying for the 11 right up until verse 20 where it says in our text, I do not ask for these only, not just for the 12, the 11, um, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. So who are those who believe in Jesus through the apostles' word? It's the ones who believe what the New Testament has to say about Jesus, and that's us. Um, <clears throat> that's Christians uh, throughout history and around the world. So this prayer reveals the Trinity to us for our preparation for evangelism. That's what he's praying for. And what does Jesus pray for us? What does he want us to learn about the Trinity through his prayer Verse 21, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us. So you could, you could go real deep on this. We'll do that in a few minutes maybe. But he's praying for our unity, right, that they all may be one. He's praying for our unity as the church, which is based on the unity of the Trinity, um, we talked about this a few weeks ago, the fact that God is one, one God, because the Father is in the Son, and the Son is in the Father, and also that the Father and the Son are in each other because God is one. Right? So there's, uh, there's some paradox there. Um, it's a bit paradoxical, but both the oneness and the threeness of God are equally ultimate. That's what the scriptures teach. That's what we have to hold to. But this kind of unity that is being described here, where Jesus says, you, Father, are in me, and I'm in you, uh, is, is a mutual indwelling. The fancy theological word for it is perichoretic union, right? Perichoresis. Try to find a way to use that in your conversation this week, I guess. Uh, it, that kind of unity is itself the basis for the unity that we have as the church. It's the unity of those who believe in Jesus through the apostles' word. Right? It's, the, it's the, the, the unity in the Trinity is the basis for the unity of the church. <clears throat> so Jesus prays that just as the Father and the Son are in each other, that we would be one um, and we would be in them. That right there is uh, just a mind-blowingly incredible privilege um, that, that we would experience union with the Trinity. And Jesus' reason for praying this for us is in the next phrase, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. So the Son asks the Father that we, knowing who we are, broken, sinful, 
rebellious, treacherous humans. Um, we would participate in divine unity with God and with each other so that the world may believe that the Father sent the Son, right? um, so that the world may believe in God's triune nature, that God is at least a Father and a Son, right? Um, so that the world may believe in the incarnation of the Son. That's how he was sent. He became a man. Right? He became Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Um, so that the world may believe in God's gracious saving love, which is the reason why the Father sent the Son, so that the world might be saved and find eternal life. Uh, Jesus said earlier in John's Gospel, in chapter 3, very familiar verse, God so loved the world that he gave his only Son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. And that's the Gospel right there. God loves us, and he gave his Son, Jesus, for us. So God is a father. He's a father who has a son to give. God is willing to give his son because he loved us. God gave his son up to death on a cross because he loved us to remove the penalty for our sins uh, as, a, as an obstacle between us and him, to, to reconcile us to himself, to save us. Right? And believing in this God, knowing this God, um, in union with him, is eternal life. That's the way Jesus describes it in John 17. This is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Which is a, it's a Trinitarian statement because Christ means the Spirit-anointed one. Right? Um, that they would know you, the only true God, speaking to his Father, and Jesus, the Spirit-anointed Son, um, whom you have sent. So that's what Jesus is praying that the world would believe. And he's praying that our unity, based on the Trinity, would evangelize the world. Right. Uh, so maybe you're wondering, at this point, doesn't the Trinity actually include more than two? Because that's what we see kind of uh, leap off the page. There's the Father and the Son, right? Uh, isn't there another one? Um, uh, what about the Spirit? Um, <clears throat> the Spirit is all over this passage. Right? Even though the word Spirit doesn't show up. Uh, maybe you remember a couple weeks ago we, we talked about uh, the fact that the Spirit is sometimes identified in the New Testament by more abstract terms. Uh, these abstract terms are always made personal, um, but, but they're abstract terms that maybe surprise us as being uh, identifiers for the Spirit. Like our first sermon in the series, 1 John chapter 2, he's called the anointing. It doesn't use the word Spirit, it says anointing. So the anointing abides in you. The, the anointing teaches you because the anointing is true. It's talking about the Spirit. Uh, and we've talked about how the Spirit is, and this is hard for us to understand. <laughs> I mean, I'm not saying I have it all down, but he is the love. He is the fellowship. He's the communion between the Father and the Son. Right? Um, when the Father gives himself fully to the Son, which is what love is, giving yourself uh, when the Father does that fully and perfectly, that is so substantial and so profound, it is a person, and that is a spirit. And the Son uh, reciprocates that, returns everything the Father has given to him, and he returns the spirit in love, right? And that is love, and that's, that's part of why we say God is love. Uh, the Father and the Son are united in the spirit that they share. They are one because they share the spirit. And they share the Spirit because they are one. And the Spirit proceeds from both of them in mutual self-giving. So, sorry, this is 
crazy stuff. But So sometimes the Spirit is referred to in more abstract language than we would expect. Um, and it says in our in verses 22 and 23, Jesus says, The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one. I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one. So um, Rodney Whitaker is a commentator on this passage. He says, Glory refers to the revelation of God in all his beauty of being and character. Glory is a manifestation of God himself, not just a revelation about him. Um, And Jesus says in verse 24 to his father, you've given me glory because you loved me before the foundation of the world. So the father gave the son eternal glory because he loved him from eternity. The father eternally gave himself to the son in the spirit. Right? Um, So what's the glory of the Lord? Glory isn't just some bright, shiny aspect of God's amazing divinity. It is God giving himself. It's God coming towards you, if you will, in love. So a better question than what is the glory of the Lord is is who is the glory of the Lord? Glory in this context is one of the persons of the Trinity. Verse 22, it's the one who makes the Father and the Son one. Uh, verses 23, 24, and 26, the, the one who is the love of the Father for the Son. Um, verse 26, he, he's the love through whom the Son is in us. And back in verse 22, he's the one who makes us one, even as the Father and the Son are one. Um, he's the spirit of unity, Paul calls him in Ephesians chapter 4. The, the glory of the Lord, this is a common picture in the Old Testament, the glory of the Lord fills his temple, right? And Paul says in 1 Corinthians 3, do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? So he's called the spirit of glory in 1 Peter 4. He's frequently associated with God's glory in Old Testament uh, visions that the prophets had. Maybe this seems crazy to you, um, but I think it actually makes sense. The Spirit is called glory in this passage because we understand glory to do what we understand the Spirit to do, right? What does glory do? It's, um, you know, we usually think of glory, we think of like celebrity, uh, fame, um, cool fighter jets pulling off tricks in the air that just stuns you, you know? Um, that's glory, right? That's, that's amazing. Um, glory is something being made known, not just for intellectual awareness, right? not just for head knowledge. Glory is something being made known for delight. Glory is something being made known for appreciation, for uh, the response of the whole person. In one of the Psalms, it says, uh, my glory rejoices, because there's this connection between the, the substance of glory and the, the amazement and the delight that glory brings. And um, so when you're talking about glory on the level of a divine, glory is not, it, it's more than a purpose, person's reputation. It's more 
uh, something with weight and substance that provokes a response. When you're talking about divine glory, you're talking about a person. And like Whitaker said, a manifestation of God himself in all of his beauty and being and character. It's more than just a revelation. It's a manifestation of God himself. Jesus has given us this glory. He's given us his spirit, which is like, he describes, streams of living water that, that flow with the knowledge of God, which well up to eternal life, the knowledge of God, intimate communion with God. He pours out eternal life on all those who receive him by faith. That's glory. And that glory fills the temple. And that glory spreads to cover the earth with the knowledge of God as the waters cover the seas. And Jesus is praying that that saving knowledge of God would spread as we are knit together in the unity of the Spirit. It says again, verses 22 through 23, The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. So the Father loved the Son and lavished his Spirit upon him before the foundation of the world. And he's, he's loved us in the same way he's lavished his Spirit upon us. The love of God has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who's been given to us, Romans chapter 5. He's given us the same Spirit. He's given us the same love. He's given us the same glory as the Son of God. And the intention is that the world would know that through our oneness, through our love. So unity in the church is evangelistic because the only thing that can explain a unity like ours, the only thing that can explain a love that we have for each other in the church is a God like ours. It's a triune God of love and grace. Spirit-filled unity in the church. Um, as we've seen before, just a couple weeks ago, we talked about unity more in depth um, It overcomes anything that would create division between us. It overcomes anything that would separate us. The spirit of love who dwells in us, dwells among us, he overcomes political differences uh, by which we might identify ourselves. Um, He overcomes ethnic and national differences by which we distinguish ourselves from others. He overcomes all sorts of cultural and stylistic differences. He overcomes even language barriers. Best of all, he overcomes the barriers of sin when we sin against each other when we hurt and wound and bite and devour one, one another. Uh, he overcomes that. He makes us able to forgive each other just as God has forgiven us in Christ. That's what the spirit of love, the spirit of unity does among us. And the world can't explain that. The world can't account for that. The world can't produce that. And if someone from the world, which is the world apart from God, the world outside the church, uh, in rebellion against God, if someone from the world finds these things beautiful, if someone from the world finds these things compelling, then we as those who bear witness about uh, Christ through our gospel, we can help explain to them that such things are only possible with our God. Um, Then they'll know that God is Father, Son, and Spirit moving toward the world in love, moving toward the world in self-giving, self-disclosure, in salvation. So our evangelism 
is to reflect God's uh, triune love as it has been shared with us. And this is one of the quotes from the beginning of the bulletin. Um, D.A. Carson says that the thought is breathtakingly extravagant. The unity of the disciples as it approaches the perfection that is its goal serves not only to convince many in the world that Christ is indeed the supreme locus of divine revelation, as Christians claim, but that Christians themselves have been caught up into the love of the Father for the Son, secure and content and fulfilled, because loved by the Almighty himself with the very same love he reserves for his Son. It is hard to imagine a more compelling evangelistic appeal. And because God is uh, triune, because in himself he is love for other, who has graciously shared his divine life with us, the more that we press into him, the more we know him, the more we press into his love, the more that it flings us out to imitate him in love of other. Because that's who he is, he's love of other. And the, the further in we press to who he is, the more it flings us out. And the way in which we move out in evangelism the way in which we do so must be loving. Because our God is love and our means of sharing the message about him have to align with the message itself. Right? So we don't lead off too often with, you're going to hell unless. Right? Hopefully we don't. Um, hopefully we lead with things like hospitality, friendliness, welcoming and serving um, at our house, we don't want a fence in the front yard blocking the sidewalk uh, because we want to be inviting. We want everything that we do, everything that we have to be inviting um, because God has invited us into his home. Because God is a God of love, he's a beautiful trinity. At our house, we do this imperfectly. Uh, Joe Pope does this better. We try to get over it when visitors break our stuff, especially when the kids break our stuff. <laughs> right? We try to get over it because they're more important than our stuff. Right? Because they're people and we're meant to love them and we're made in God's image together and God is people loving other people. We try to um, do community evangelism, which is a concept I think maybe some of you have read about in uh, Tim Chester's book, Total Church. Right, you've heard of relational evangelism where you kind of have this one-on-one -on -one relationship with people. Community evangelism. You try to get together with groups of friends, some of them from inside the church, some of them from outside the church, um, so that non-Christian friends can see how Christian friends interact in love with one another. Because that's what Jesus is praying will reflect divine love in a way that's evangelistic. And that means we've uh, actually got to have some non-Christian friends, which usually means... Um, got to make a more deliberate effort to spend time with non-Christian friends. Um, <clears throat> Barbara Tuttle, who some of you, a lot of you know, she used to be part of this church. Uh, she's made a resolution to spend equal amounts of time through her week. If she spends some time with a Christian friend, she's going to schedule an appointment with a non-Christian friend. Right? She's set up that expectation for herself in order to share the gospel that she loves about the God who has loved her. <clears throat> When we, um, when we share the gospel, we try to do so graciously. We try to do it without condemning others because that's how God has moved toward us. 
in love, he came not to condemn the world, but to save the world. And when we share the gospel, we need to talk about the Trinity, because at the end of the day, that's what makes Christianity absolutely unique, <clears throat> because that's the best thing we've got going for us, right? Because a triune God of love is beautiful and amazing in himself, and he's beautiful and amazing toward us. Um, so you need to invite your friends to church. This is where we meet that God. This is where that, that God meets people in worship. Right? If you don't feel like you want to, I mean, you, should, you should want to invite your friends to church. But if this isn't the church that you want to invite your friends to, maybe we need to have a conversation about that. What, what can we do uh, that will make it easier uh, for people to feel welcomed by the Trinity when they come to our church? Maybe you need to get to know this God better. Maybe you need to get to know this God in the first place at all. You need to get excited about who God is. Put yourself under the influence of his glory, under the influence of his spirit, the spirit of love. Maybe you need to read the Bible more frequently, pray with others and talk with others about God and read what others have written about God and about, about the Bible. You need to learn about him as he truly is, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. When, when kids get excited about something, you, know, you get excited about going to the zoo and the animals or the toys or the people or the places or whatever. Our kids get excited about you can't You can't shut them up even if you yell at them. I've tried. <laughs> you know? um, so we need to have a, a contagious, childlike fascination with who God is, who he is for us. And that will shape our evangelism. That will inform the content of our evangelism that will drive, uh, it will be the motivation for our evangelism. Right. Amen. Let's pray. <clears throat> Father, we confess that um, we need you to make yourself known to us because we can't, can't find you, we can't think you up. We've, um, we've tried to think up various ways to get to you and they all fail they all portray you miserably, um, but you have revealed yourself through your word, and so uh, we pray that you would help us to take advantage of that. We pray that you would help us to get to know who you really are on a deeper level than we ever have before, that uh, you would show us how you've opened up your divine life to us, that we are now uh, part of um, your family because of your grace, because of your uh, love which is eternal. You've loved us with the same love with which you've loved your own son. Uh, we pray that you would help that to sink into our hearts by the Holy Spirit who you've given to us. And so we pray now for a, a fuller measure of your spirit to have our hearts changed so that as we dwell together in the unity of the spirit, it would be a thing that is beautiful and compelling and attractive to all those who are around us, our family and our friends and loved ones and our coworkers and our neighbors and uh, just anybody that we see, uh, we pray as you prayed, Christ, that um, you would be in us and that we would be in you and that we would be perfectly one so that the world may know that the Father sent you and has loved us even as he has loved you. And we pray this in your name. Amen.